Howdy. You're listening to the Texas A&M RUF podcast. Hope you enjoyed the talk. All right, um, our scripture reading tonight comes from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Um, it says, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, "Now Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This the first this the first of the signs. Sorry, this the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to go ahead and pray for us real quick. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this day and bringing all of us here together to worship you. Um, I pray that you bless Austin as he. Um, gives us this word tonight, um, and I pray that you draw all of our hearts in, um, and that we just have a great rest of the week, um, and that we do everything in your will. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Caitlin. Um, y'all, welcome to RUF. Uh, my name's Austin McCann. I'm the new campus minister here. Uh, I also want to draw attention real quick to our RUF interns, both George Devaney. So, George, will you stand up? Uh, George Devaney, RUF Dianton, and Emma Pearson. Emma, will you stand up for us? Hey, Emma. Uh, look, we are here on campus for you guys, okay? Like, George and Emma want to get to know you. They want to meet with you, and I do as well, okay? So if you're new to RUF, if, like, you're, I don't know, this is the first time you're walking into All Face Chapel, and you're like, what is this place? Like, please come talk to me afterward. Come talk to George or Emma. We want to get to know you and want you to get plugged in. And like Jack said, like we want this to be a place for both the convinced and the unconvinced, okay? So like if you hated how your week look, looked like so far, or if you loved how your week looked so far, like we're glad you're here, okay? And if you've been with us, if you're here with, uh, with us last week, we are walking through the Gospel of John. And as we're doing that, we are examining John's claim that the things recorded in this book are for the purpose of entrusting yourself to Jesus. And that in him, we would have life in his name. And so by way of intro, um, what if I propose this, right? Like, we all think of life as being connected to happiness and joy, right? Well, what if I told you that Jesus, like, his chief aim for you, what he is up to in your life and and in this world, is to bring you joy. Like, real enjoyment that would last. Like, how does that hit you tonight? Like, does that sound cheesy or prosperity, gospel-ish? Like, does it sound unrealistic and naive? I think it's surprising for most of us, because I, I think most of the time, we're like a girl who was honest with her pastor one afternoon. 
This girl was a junior in high school, and she'd been really involved with youth group. She'd gone to her church her entire life. She worked really hard at school. But for the second time, she'd been broken up with by a guy that she really liked. And so finally, she was, she was fed up, and she just went to go meet with her pastor. And I love it. Like, in a moment of honesty, she said this. She said, look, pastor, like, I hear you talk about Jesus, and I believe in him. But, like, what good is Jesus if I don't have a boyfriend? <laughs> and, like, and that is a beautiful moment of honesty. Because whether you're, you're here examining Christianity, trying to figure it out, or whether you've just grown up in the church, and you've been a, a Christian as long as you can remember, or definitely if you're burned out tonight. Like, sometimes you just think, like, what good is Jesus if I'm sad? Like, what good is Jesus if I'm lonely? In other words, like, we don't really think Jesus is for us in our joy. And this passage that Caitlin read for us is daring to suggest that Jesus brings life, brings real lasting joy. So there's three features of the party in our passage tonight that I want us to consider. So if you're a note taker, here you go. But, right, three features of the party that, in our passage tonight. The problem of the party the solution of the party, and the cost of the party. Okay, so the problem, the solution, and the cost. So first, the problem of the party. Okay, so, so what is the problem that Jesus faces, uh, that Jesus faces to display his very first uh, miracle in his public ministry? Well, the text tells us that Jesus and his disciples are invited to a wedding. And the context here is really important because a biblical Jewish marriage in the Old and New Testament era was the chief event in the family life. It looked very different than a 21st century American wedding, okay? And there were actually three stages to this. First was the betrothal, where the terms of the marriage agreement were accepted in the presence of witnesses and God's blessing was pronounced upon the union. And this was when the bride and the groom were actually legally married. And the second stage was the procession interval, okay? So the groom paid his father-in-law the dowry for his bride with some honorable gift and then dressed up in his greatest attire. And then followed by his groomsmen, he would actually parade down to his bride's home, receive her, and they would go back to his home, consummate the marriage, and celebrate the last stage of the wedding, the marriage feast, or the great reception. And this marriage supper would, would actually last an entire week, and sometimes longer. <laughs> like, they went hard in the paint. Like... Like, full gas, no breaks, like, a week of celebration. Like, I know some of you have, like, date parties that last, like, a weekend sometimes. Like, this is a full week. Okay? And some of you are telling you, man, that sounds awesome. <laughs> like, I'm all about it. And others of you planning a wedding right now, you're like, holy cow, that's exhausting. Um, and, like, not only did this take, like, a lot of time, but it also required a lot of food and drink and resources. And who was responsible? Well, unlike a first-century American wedding, right, where the bride's family paid for the wedding, in a biblical Jewish wedding, the groom and his family were responsible. I texted my father-in-law. He has five daughters. I was like, man, you'd be a rich man, like, back in the day. Uh, but, like, the text tells us that at some point during this celebration feast, like, during this entire week, Jesus' mother Mary brings, brings to Jesus' attention that the wine is run out. And on one level, right, we all know this, okay? Like, the problem is pretty simple and ordinary. Because, like, what happens at parties or bars, like, when they close up? Well, it's usually when they stop serving and people, it's like, people start to go home. Well, during this time period, weddings were, were taken so seriously 
that if the wine ran out early, you were actually legally responsible. You could be sued by the wedding guests, like for real. <laughs> like imagine like you come home, you're like, man, how was your weekend? It was awesome. Like the bar closed early. And I literally sued like the bride and groom. Like, like that would be awesome <laughs> and not awesome at the same time. Um, like, so, so here's the problem, okay? I want you to see this. A wedding couple, namely the groom, is about to undergo public shame and embarrassment as their wedding celebration comes to an end because their wine has run out. Like, think about that, okay? Like, Jesus' first miracle, his big announcement to the world, revealing who he is, is that he encounters a dying party, an unnamed couple about to endure some shame because the wine has gone out, and he turns the water into wine to rev back up the celebration. Like, I, I admit, that's cool. But, like, really? Like, Jesus, that's your first miracle? Look, if I was wanting to convince people to believe Jesus was God, like, let's just say that this miracle, like, yeah, it's really cool, but it probably wouldn't be at the top of the list. Right? Like, like Jesus, like, why didn't you, like, raise some, like a bunch of people from the dead? Like, why didn't you, I don't know, have a bunch of angels come down and, like, throw you up into the air and have you spin around or something? Like, why not fill in the blank? Like, all of the things that, that the God of this world could have done, like, entering into, into our world. And he encounters a dying party. He brings life to a dying party. Like, is that a big deal? I mean, probably to this wedding couple it was a big deal. But in the grand scope of world history, like, is this really a big problem? I mean, who cares? The answer? The Lord of the universe does. He cares. Like, this is the kind of God He is. The Lord of space and time and dimension enters into this little problem because He cares. He doesn't belittle our, our problems. Like, do you believe that's who Jesus is? Do you believe your struggles actually matter to Him? Or do, or do you think that your problems are so insignificant that they actually bring out irritation and annoyance from Jesus? Or do you think they actually bring out His compassion? Do you believe Jesus cares about the fact that you're still lonely as a sophomore in college? Like, do you believe that he still cares about your parents' divorce and the emotions and the aftermath that you're still dealing with? Like, do you believe that he still cares about your anger problems and wants you to become a softer and more patient man or woman? Like, it's the very reason he came. To ultimately save us and free us from both our sin and our suffering, no matter how small or big. No... No problem we face is too little for Jesus to care about. He really cares. But this is what I want you to see tonight. This is the key for understanding the big picture of what's going on in our text. Okay? What does wine represent in the Bible? You see, the Bible associates wine with blessing and joy. Psalm 104.15 tells us that God created wine to gladden the heart of man. Proverbs 3.10, your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats bursting with joy. And on the opposite end, the Bible associates a lack of wine with sorrow and darkness. Isaiah 24, 11. There's an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. And we could go on and on. But wine in the Bible is connected to real, substantial, lasting joy. And a lack of wine to sorrow and darkness. And that becomes a vivid picture of what we read earlier in Isaiah 25. When God speaks of when he will finally heal everything that's wrong with this world. That when Jesus returns, he says this, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, 
of rich food full of merit, of, of aged wine well refined. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. When you consider the Scriptures' symbolic use of wine, here's what you realize. Is that the party in our passage running out of wine is a parable, is actually a picture of the problem of all humanity. That humanity, apart from Jesus, who is life and joy itself, is always characterized by the wine running out, joy not lasting. You see, according to the Bible, our problem is separation from Jesus because of sin. But that sin means that we look for satisfaction and joy in all the wrong places. And the result is the wine, the joy of life, actually runs out. Um, in 2005, CBS Sports did a 60 Minutes interview with a guy, you may have heard of him, his name's Tom Brady. Um, now a seven-time Super Bowl champion. They did this back when he was 27. He's like ancient now. Um, there's a moment of an incredible honesty. Because Steve Croft is interviewing him and he says this. He says, Tom, this whole experience, this whole upward trajectory, what have you learned about yourself? Like, What kind of an effect does it have on you? And in honesty, Brady was like, like, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is it. Like, you reached it. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me? I think it's got to be something more than this. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. And what else is there for me? And then Croft kind of asks, like, okay, well, what's the answer? And Brady said, I wish I knew. I mean, I think that's part of me trying to go out and experience other things. I love playing football, and I love being quarterback for this team. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of other parts about me that I'm still trying to find. And then Croft ended with this. He said, well, well, which Super Bowl ring is your favorite? Guys, you're probably, like, you're probably not, like, and Brady was like, the next one. It's always the next one. Don't you see that the problem at the wedding is our problem? It's a human problem. That our life is characterized by trying to find joy and satisfaction that will last in all the wrong things. And the joy always runs out. It's why Brady's favorite ring is always the next. It's because each ring will never satisfy the joy that he's actually looking for. And it's like, it's why some of you are so driven. You're convinced that joy in life won't run out if you become the person that has it all together. If you can be well-liked, well-respected, do well in my major, be involved in the right leadership organization, right campus ministry, read my Bible every day, evangelize to enough people, and lead a mission trip. Like, if I can just be that person, then the joy will never run out. But you're tired, aren't you? <laughs> like, when you finally have room to breathe for a second, you realize there's still the next week coming for me to keep up this image. It's why some of you, it's picture after picture, it's reel after reel, it's TikTok after TikTok, for hours on your phone. The illicit picture or video brings some sense of excitement, feeling satisfaction. But it always runs out. And it's on to the next. And it's why some of you are probably in bad relationships with a girlfriend or boyfriend. And you know it. But, but if you let this go, like, what if it's the best I can do? Then the joy will finally run out. See, the, the problem at the wedding on the one hand is a couple on their wedding week about to undergo shame. But on the other hand, it's a grand picture of all of our problems, of humanity's problem. That separation from God is the real problem. 
trying to live without Jesus, trying to find satisfaction and joy apart from Him, always means that the wine will eventually run out. So this is our second point. What's the solution to the party? The solution is that Jesus tells the servants to fill six stone water jars that hold 20 and 30 gallons. And the servants do that, right? Um, and then Jesus says, okay, now take them to the master of the feast. Take them to the wedding coordinator. And they do. And the wedding coordinator tastes it. And he discovers, like, holy cow, like, this wine is amazing. This is, better, this is better wine than we've had earlier in the week. And so the solution on the one hand is that Jesus miraculously changes water into wine, and he revs back up the party. And therefore, the groom and the bride never undergo shame, the embarrassment of not having enough money, and everyone going home. And, like, think about what Jesus just did. Like, what humility and selflessness and generosity. You get the impression bride and groom, almost everyone there has no idea what happened. Like, it seems that Jesus does this miracle and he saves the couple from shame and embarrassment. And he keeps the joy of the party going, yet only a few people actually know what happened. And think about the miracle itself. Here it is. He, at minimum miraculously creates 120 gallons of rich, incredible-tasting wine. And I think that's around 700 bottles of wine, the math I did. Like, why the abundance? Why is it great, rich wine, and not, like, Natty Light? <laughs> like, consider this, okay? Um, Ricky Jones talks about this illustration, which is great. He says, imagine a scenario, okay? Like, it's Friday night, you're in the HEB parking lot, and you see a middle-aged man walk into H-E-B, and he walks out with a bottle of wine. Like, you're probably thinking to yourself, okay, like, that guy's probably heading home for a nice night at home with his wife. Like, that looks fun. Now imagine that you see the same guy walk into, the, into H-E-B, and he walks out with three cases of Lone Star. And you're like, whoa, okay, that, guy, that guy's going to a party. Like, some sort of event is going to happen. Now imagine that you saw the same guy back up his pickup truck to the door of H-E-B. And then on pallets, starts loading his truck with 700 bottles, 120 gallons of incredibly expensive and good wine. You would think, okay, that guy is the party. <laughs> like, wherever he's going, like a feast is happening. He's the centerpiece. And look, I'm not trying to be irreverent, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to get the point across the fact that Jesus, when he makes an abundance of wine, he is proclaiming something about himself. He is saying, I am the joy that you're actually looking for. I'm the fullness of life and joy. I'm the only place where joy and satisfaction will never, ever run out. And like, how can that be? You see, all of our pursuits of joy, all of these places where the wine keeps running out, do you know what we're actually really longing for? We're longing to be fully known and fully loved. It's actually what you were made for. It's what you're yearning for in sex. It's what you're yearning for in all of your academic achievements. To be known, accepted, and loved. But don't you see, you were made to be known fully at your core by the Lord of the universe and to be loved with a never-stopping, never-ending, always-forever love. And we just don't believe that. <laughs> like, we just think God is a withholding God. And that's exactly what Satan wants us to believe. That's what the Bible tells us. This is echoes of Eden here. Satan's first lie at the very beginning of the Bible 
that he uses against Adam and Eve is, a, is a, in Genesis 3 is attacking God's character by saying what? Did God really say that you could not eat from any tree in the garden? In other words, he's committed to creating a narrative that God is a withholding God, stingy with love and grace and joy. And honestly, like that's how many of you, when you think about life in college or life in the future, how many of you would say that Jesus gets in the way of real life? Because if we are honest, like most people think Jesus turns wine into water. That following Jesus, following and obeying his commands is like a giant fence denying you of the amusement park. And I want to acknowledge this. Like others of you tonight, others of you have been so hurt by things that have been done to you. And you're in so much pain. And there's things about you that no one else knows. And it's just hard for you to believe this. That you just turn to cynicism rather than daring to believe that there actually is real enduring joy. But Jesus with this miracle is saying that he is God who wants to lavish his joy on his people. And you think to yourself, okay, like that sounds nice, but really, like really, how can I trust Jesus with my joy? Well, consider our last point, okay? The cost of the party. Like, this dialogue between Jesus and his mother is, like, really strange, isn't it? Like, she says, Jesus, there's no more wine. And Jesus' response is kind of cryptic and strange. He's, he's like, woman, what, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. When Jesus says, my hour, it's going to come up again and again throughout our series. But in the Gospel of John, my hour, or the hour in John, always points forward to Jesus' coming arrest, his death, and his resurrection. So when Mary says they have no wine, Jesus is saying, it's not time for me to die yet. Now that's strange. It's almost like Jesus was thinking about his death while watching the wedding. Well, is that actually strange? Think about it. Like, what do many of you do when you go to a wedding? Like, many of you, not all of you. Right? We start imagining and thinking about your, your own wedding and what it would look like one day, right? Like, what song will I walk out to? Or what, we will, what, what are we going to serve at the reception? Like, do I have something borrowed, something blue, something gold, something new, right? Well, Jesus is God himself in the flesh. And he's the one who created marriage. And do you know what Ephesians 5 tells us is the purpose of marriage? It's a living picture of Jesus, the great bridegroom, and his love for his bride, his people, the church. So Jesus is thinking about what the wedding he is observing ultimately points to. His own wedding. His own marriage. His wedding day where he takes his bride, the church, to himself forever and ever. But what's the cost? What is the dowry that Jesus has to pay to marry us, his sinful people? It's going to mean his hour, his crucifixion. It's going to cost his life. This is how you can trust Jesus with your joy. Meditate and think on it, about what it costs Jesus to save you and to marry you. You see, what we deserve when we are looking for all of life in the wrong places, is death, is eternal sorrow, separation from the one who is life itself. A well-known seminary professor 
stated that back in the ancient Near Eastern uh, Jewish culture, one of the greatest gifts that a father could give to his son was finding him a bride. And what Scripture tells us is that before the foundations of the earth, God the Father chooses to give God the Son a bride for himself, you and me. Not because we're beautiful and not because we are lovely, but only because he is. So God fulfills his promise by sending his son Jesus, the bridegroom, who goes to the cross and takes away our sin and the wrath of God. Why? (laughs) So that he can bring you, his bride, with him to what Revelation 19 calls the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's where all of world history is headed. That when Jesus returns, he brings the weddings of all weddings. That when there are finally... When there will finally be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain, where the wine always flows and where the joy never runs out. Tim Keller points this out, and it's actually kind of hilarious. Um, well, you think, like, think about the groom of this wedding, okay, in our passage. Like, here he is, okay? Like, the wine has run out. He's about to be the laughing stock of the party, he's about to be humiliated and shamed. Yet what happens because of Jesus? This wedding coordinator looks at the groom after tasting the wine, and who does he give credit to? He gives it to the groom. He says, you, you kept the good wine until now. The groom takes credit for what Jesus did. And you kind of get the impression that the groom is kind of like, well, yeah, <laughs> I mean... That's just the kind of guy I am, you know? Like, like a- after that party, everyone would have been finished that week, giving, like, the groom high fives and be like, man, that, am- that was, like, an amazing celebration and, like, the best wine we've ever had. And there's Jesus, letting the groom take the credit for what he did because he was willing to take the cost of shame of what the groom deserved. And Jesus loves it. I'm telling you, this is a picture of salvation. He takes my shame, my sin, my embarrassment, all of the costs of seeking joy in the wrong places, and in return, he gives his life, his righteousness, his beauty, and says, bask in it. He went to the cross at an infinite cost to himself so that you and I can truly have an infinite joy, unending. Jesus doesn't want to be your tradition. Like, he doesn't want to be your handyman to fix your problems. He isn't a pill you take for a better day. He wants to be your husband. He wants to be with you. He wants you to trust him with your joy. Because he's ravished with you. Like, don't you at least wish that were true? It is. Infinite joy offered tonight. Jesus the bridegroom offering himself to you and an invitation to the wedding of all weddings. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in Jesus the wine, the joy, the fuel of celebration never runs out. Help us again to believe that you delight in being our bridegroom in lavishing your joy and your grace upon us. And that one day we will feast with you forever, forever, in unending joy. Amen.
We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the Texas A&M RUF podcast. If you're interested in joining us for a large group, we would love to see you at All Faiths Chapel on the north side of campus across from Sabisa at 8 p.m. on Wednesdays. Go ahead and follow at AggieRUF on Instagram for updates about any other events we're putting on. We hope to see you around. Thanks and gig em.